Hello, welcome back. Uh, before I begin, of course, I want to thank each and every one of you who listen to my podcast, who send me your questions and your comments, and who are supportive, who share this uh, same desire as myself for wanting to bring awareness regarding domestic violence and child abuse. I just I want you all to know that I really appreciate all of the support that I get from you. And today I want to talk about Dylan Groves, this this poor little baby. He really ha- didn't have a chance, this poor little child. He was born on December 10th, um, excuse me, January 10th in 2019 and 53 days later his little body was found at the bottom of a 30-foot well. And so I want to go over his story and I want to talk about some things that happened along the way where the system let him down. In this story, there's going to be a lot of talk about illegal drugs and um, I do want to preface the story with... um, The statement that although drugs are a contributing factor, a huge contributing factor to the sad little life of this baby, um, that I, I don't want to be judgmental towards people who have addictions. There's a lot of people who have addictions and may find themselves in a situation where they're going to be having a child, um, and yet they don't behave the way that these two parents behaved that I want to recognize that drug addiction and drug abuse is a disease and um, that it can be treated and that people can live productive lives after going through um, the challenges of being an addict so saying that up front um, let's get on with the story so Dylan Groves' parents were Jessica Groves. She was 39 when he was born. She was a licensed practical practical nurse, but she was not working at the time that he was born. And his father was Daniel Groves. He was 41, and uh, we don't really know what his occupation was, although he was um, a thief. Uh, That that all came out when um, the police finally got involved in this case. And Dylan also had an older brother, Daniel Jr., who was 14 at the time of the um, arrest of Jessica and Daniel Sr. Um, Jessica and Daniel Sr. were married for over 20 years, and they had addiction problems. They um, had issues with heroin and meth and amphetamines and probably some other drugs. Um, so this was the lifestyle that they had when Dylan was conceived and all the way through to the time of their arrest. Jessica did not receive any prenatal care while she was pregnant. And, uh, the, I guess how it came out, if you want to put it that way, that she was actually pregnant was when her son noticed that her belly was getting big and asked her about it, and she said, yes, she was pregnant. So, 
like a normal pregnant woman would want to know all the all the details of you know what's happening at this stage of my pregnancy and going to doctor's offices and getting regular visits and getting sonograms and sharing these pictures none of that happened with Jessica she didn't get any prenatal care she didn't tell her family until her son confronted her it was just it was just a very odd right from the very beginning behavior for a pregnant woman so the day comes when she's finally in labor she goes to the hospital and the nurses knew right away that something was going on with this woman that she was on something that she wasn't behaving normally and um, they were asking her and they they ask people when you go into the hospital really for anything they one of the things that they ask you is do you take recreational drugs and she wouldn't answer them they tried to get a urine sample from her and she wouldn't she refused they they tried to give her a bedpan she wouldn't go on the bedpan she just was very uncooperative as far as letting them know that she had drugs in her system and um she also wasn't behaving normally for a woman who was 10 centimeters dilated that you know this is a very painful part of the birthing process when a baby goes from the womb through the birth canal it's it's painful and yet she really wasn't acting like somebody who was in that phase of delivery she so they knew that she was on something and um the way that they found out that she had drugs in her system and this was important they needed to know this before the baby was born because they would have had to treat this baby differently because of the withdrawal once he was born so they catheterized her and that's how they found out that she had these drugs in her system so needless to say little baby dylan he was born addicted he had the shakes and he spent five days in the NICU because of his withdrawal is you know this is dangerous for the baby and while they were in the hospital the testimony from the nurses was that you know they wouldn't the parents wouldn't ask to see the baby when they brought the baby in uh jessica would say we'll just put him over there there wasn't that bonding she just really wasn't bonding normally with her baby like any other mother would have and um even because of the birth of the baby with drugs in his system child protective services that's what i'm going to call them i'm i don't remember what they call them in ohio where all this took place and i know that different states have different names but it's child protective services is what i'm going to call it through my podcast um their the testimony that they gave was that there's a lot of babies that are born addicted sadly it happens it's part of what's going on in our society right now we have issues with mothers who are addicted and um there's a lot of babies that are born that way they said that there could be as many as 10 babies in the hospital at a time that have withdrawals because they came from mothers who were addicted however the reason why this case sticks out so much in the minds of the people who were helping jessica and baby dylan at the time while she was in the hospital while the baby was in the hospital was this lack of concern on jessica's part in other words what the professionals were saying is even though mothers come in with addiction they still want to know that their baby's okay and jessica really just didn't seem to care and so uh the baby did end up in 
Child Protective Services and they called a foster mother. Her name was Andrea and she was a teacher and she was middle-aged. She had a grown child who was away at college and because she had been a teacher and she saw a lot of children who had issues that they were dealing with at home, she decided that she wanted to be a foster mother because she thought that she could help these children. Now, one of the things that happened transitionally that I want to mention here before we get too much into Andrea's or Andrea, her testimony is that uh, Daniel, the father, was given a urinalysis uh, right around the same time, and he did come out positive. So the information that everybody has at the time when baby Dylan goes into the hospital is that the baby's withdrawn. He was born addicted. The mother is behaving abnormally, and she's had drugs in her system, but the dad has tested negative for any drugs in his system. So little baby Dylan goes, is getting ready. They're getting ready to send little baby Dylan to Andrews. They call her and they said, do you want to take this baby? It's a newborn. He's got addiction problems. And she's like, yes, I want to take this baby. But at the time she really wasn't prepared for a newborn. So she was at work when the call came in and she started making phone calls right away to her friends and family, telling them she needs a crib, she needs blankets, she needs diapers, she needs bottles, whatever she needed to take care of a newborn baby. And by the time the end of the day came and she was ready to go home, all of her friends and family had rallied together and they got her everything that she needed to take care of this newborn baby. So she was totally prepared as far as the, the physical things that she would need to take care of a, a, an infant. So she leaves work and she goes to the hospital and she had to do some special training for babies that are born addicted. So she goes through the training and she gets little baby Dylan. She takes him home and she had him for 12 days and she just, she fell in love with this little baby. When you watch her testimony and she's testifying, there's one point where she was so upset by the things that she was testifying that she actually broke down and totally lost control of her emotions and they had to recess for a, few, a little while so she could collect herself and continue testifying and she said that uh, little Dylan he, he was shaky that he would get the sweats but this little baby really loved to be held and rocked and he liked to be swaddled and she was willing to do that she had taken 12 days off of work and she would have stayed off longer but at the end of 12 well let me before I get there about a week into um, the time that she had the baby, Jessica and Daniel had their first visitation. And so she noticed right away that Jessica, there was something wrong with the way she was behaving, that she was overly animated and just very vocal about my baby, my baby, my baby, and just saying things that were actually very different from how she behaved in the hospital. Um, but she let them have the visit. She left the room. She felt that they needed some privacy. And they, I, they were there for about an hour and she left. And as soon as they left the visitation, she called Child Protective Services, letting them know that she had concerns, particularly about Jessica, that she thought that she came to the visitation and she was on something. Um, so a few days later, she called again to find out when the next visitation was scheduled. And that's when she found out that the baby was going to be going home with Daniel. So 
she really thought that this was wrong, but it's not something that, you know, she doesn't have control over that, but she really felt that this was a bad decision. It had only been 12 days. Um, but she got the pictures together for Daniel that she had taken of little baby Dylan and some other personal belongings, a blanket and some toys and things like that, that she gave it to Daniel. And she told him that if she ever needed, if he ever needed any help, like a babysitter or anything like that, um, you know, to let her know. So she, she gave him her contact information, but she also was trying to be respectful and not overstep her bounds, you know, as far as just being a foster mother. It wasn't her child. Um, so the stipulations were when the baby was released back to Daniel was that Jessica was not to be living in the home, that both Jessica and Daniel were to take drug testing, that they were, Jessica was anyway, supposed to be attending, attending parent classes and that she was also supposed to be getting some sort of therapy or counseling for drug addictions. So now the baby was born in January. Here we are on May 3rd. So by the time May 3rd rolled around, it's just a few months, people started noticing that Jessica wasn't coming to any of her drug counseling, they, they were just kind of disappeared, really, is what was happened, what had happened. They weren't showing up for appointments they were supposed to have. They weren't responding to phone calls. When people went out and knocked on the door, nobody answered the door. And different parts of the system were going out to try to get in contact with Daniel and find out where Dylan was, because they were, of course, responsible for his safety. And... Um, on one of these visits, they finally saw Jessica and Daniel on a four-wheeler, and they basically got away. They, they tried to catch them, but they went off the road and into the woods in a place where, I guess, on, on a, in a regular car, the police officers couldn't keep up with them. So they disappeared. Now, that was on May 3rd, or around that time. So June 10th, so more than a month has passed, that they could finally get a search warrant to go to the house. And... Jessica was arrested fairly easily and fairly quickly after they got there. Daniel, on the other hand, there was a six-hour standoff, and eventually they got him, but it took them six hours to get him out of the house. And, of course, while they're there, they also found tons of stolen merchandise and things like ATVs and campers and different kinds of equipment. There was over $40,000 worth of stolen property on the place where Jessica and Daniel were living so they arrested the two parents but baby Dylan is nowhere to be found they could not find him so they arrest them and they're questioning them and neither one of them are saying anything they're not telling them where the baby is and then eventually Daniel started giving locations but he was lying he would send them off like on a wild goose chase to try to find this baby and of course the baby's not there this went on and you know, for a while. So what they did was they put both of them in a room together alone and they recorded that and they started whispering, you know, and they were saying different things and Jessica's talking about how they were threatening her and um, they, here's the thing. So (laughs) they're in this room and they're whispering so that nobody can hear them but what they don't realize is that there's way to amplify amplify the sound so they could hear everything that they were saying. So after this, 
and this is kind of a, I believe, a fairly common technique that they use when there's partners or multiple people involved in a crime, is they'll start trying to pit one against the other. So they were, they separated them and they started saying whatever they said to the two of them. And Daniel, he basically cracked, I guess you could say. And he did tell them where they could find this well that the baby's body was dumped in. So the well was like a couple miles away from their house. And it was in a very remote area. It was on a campground for some, like a church Bible camp. But thankfully, the camp was not in session yet. You know, there, there were no little kids there camping. And so the fire department went there. And first they were trying to drain this well. But this well was fed by a spring. So they couldn't get the water out to see what was in the bottom of it. So they, they kind of fished for it. They, and they pulled up this package, I'm going to call it. It was basically milk crate that were fastened together and they, there was something in it and they could tell right away uh, from the smell that there was something dead in that in that crate I and mean, you know the smell of death when you smell it you know and that's what they were describing so they didn't open open it there when they pulled it up they left everything intact and uh, sent it to the medical the me, um what do they call it the the oh my gosh brain cramp the person that does the autopsies medical examiner sorry about that oh my gosh um so in the testimony of the medical examiner explained from beginning to end how she went about opening this package that it, she described it as two milk crates that were fastened together with wires and chain and locks and how they opened it up and separated it and inside there was layers and layers of plastic and bedding and so on and so forth and then eventually she got to the baby's body and she described what she saw from there and one so some of the things that are very, very specific and relevant in the testimony of the medical professionals who did the autopsies of this baby's body was, um, first of all, the baby was on drugs. So he had been born for several weeks and the drugs that he was born with should have been out of his system. But somehow this baby tested possible positive for methamphetamines at the time of his death or postmortem actually. So that was of significance. And then the other details that are also very, very significant, aside from the amount of bruising that was described, which one of the bruises was the bruise on his head, and it went from the front of his head across the top of his head. And, you know, babies' skulls are soft and flexible, when they're born and, and this baby was not old enough for his soft spot to close yet. So, um, there was that, but he had two fractures on his skull and one of them had shown signs of healing already. And the other one was a fresh. And so what this indicates to the medical examiner is that this baby had gone through not just one incidence of abuse, but a series of incidents of abuse, which was indicated by the various, 
um, stages of healing that some of his broken bones had been going through. He had broken legs, he had broken arms, he had broken ribs, just terrible, 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 painful wounds. And they also testified that, you know, with a broken rib, a broken rib, anybody who had one, you would know that every time you take a breath, you're moving that broken bone and it's just painful. And so this baby would have been crying. It, it just would have been so awful for this child. So that was the testimony of the medical examiner, very relevant to show that this was just not an isolated event, but that it was an ongoing problem. Daniel Jr. also testified, and a couple things that he had testified about was that, one, he was giving his dad urine, his own urine, because he wasn't doing drugs, so his dad could fake his urine tests or fudge on them. Um, and then the other thing that he testified about was the bruise that he noticed on the baby's forehead and that Jessica had said that a dream catcher, the baby was playing with a dream catcher, which I don't know why, because I don't think that's an appropriate baby toy, but that's just my opinion. But anyway, somehow he got tangled up in it and hit himself in the head. And he also said that this bruise was pretty big on the baby's forehead. Now, Daniel Sr., he also testified, and he had said in his testimony, one of the things was that he had... He had actually seen Jessica abusing the baby that she was not treating him. She had been rough with him and she hurt him. Jessica's testimony, y'all, I don't even know why they let this woman testify, but she did. She's up there crying. And you can tell it's a fake crocodile tear crying, you know. She was, again, refusing to answer questions. She would say, I don't remember, and she'd be whiny. Um, but when she was pressed for answers, she would get belligerent and defensive and say things like, it was an accident. And the prosecutor really was pushing her hard. She, you know, it's an accident. You don't remember, but you know it was an accident and trying to get her to explain how these injuries happened to this poor child. And Jessica kind of cracked a little bit. She said, I'm done talking to you. She got kind of nasty with the prosecutor and and the prosecutor just fired right back no you're not you're on the witness stand you have to answer my questions you know and she just really let into this woman um letting her know that she wasn't going to be easy on her she wanted to know and she wanted to know right now and she wanted all the facts and basically she didn't get a very good answer out of jessica not one that she felt was acceptable but um truthfully i think that jessica's demeanor on the witness stand was enough to incriminate her anyway so in the end Jessica got, got life without the possibility of parole and Daniel got life with the possibility of parole at 47 years old so he's going to be a very old man if he gets released from jail and he doesn't die before then because remember he was 41 when he was arrested so he's going to be old if he if he lives that long now my thoughts on this I can't really say much about Jessica. I think Jessica said enough about herself just in her demeanor and how she behaved um, that I'm not going to say too much about her and her behavior. But what I do want to talk about is how the system handled this. So things that we know, Jessica and Daniel had been together for 20 years. They have a long history together. So assuming that he's going to kick her out of the house 
which is basically what they were asking her to do, is not reasonable, okay? These people are very well bonded for whatever reason or however you want to look at it. They have a long history together. And just because overnight, they're not going to separate because somebody tells them to. There's that. The second thing, and this is where I really think things went wrong. This was the beginning of the failure. And this is when, in my opinion, when Daniel was given that initial urinalysis in, that he passed. And we know after the fact that Daniel Jr. was giving him urine. But my question is, how did this happen at all? Um, I don't know if any of you have taken a, a, you know, a drug test. I've taken one for employment. And I can tell you that there were procedures that went they went through when I took mine. Now, I wasn't a known drug user. I wasn't there facing any kind of criminal or child abuse things. For my, in my case, it was for employment. And I, so I didn't have anybody in the room with me, but I did have to take, you know, lock my purse up. I had to take, uh, my jacket off. The only clothing that I was allowed to wear into the room was, you know, the, the clothes, my immediate clothing. So my shirt, my pants, my shoes, that kind of thing. But they did ask me to empty my pockets Okay, so they knew that I had nothing like stored on my body that I could fudge on this test. And so I went and I took the test and of course I passed and I got the job. But that's beside the point. The thing here is that we have potential criminal case, potential child abuse case. And my understanding was that the door was left open so that they could hear what was going on. But I do know from other things just in life that when there is a suspicion of drug abuse that there can be a same-sex witness in the room with the person who they're supposed to be providing the sample so there wasn't that and um I just don't I think they didn't follow protocol that they should have followed that's my my opinion but that's where things went wrong and obviously he was able to smuggle somebody else's urine in and pass this test. So there was that. Um, They did not take seriously the testimony or the, not the testimony, but the call from the, the foster mother who said she has concerns. And, you know, this was so early on. They didn't even really give the parents a chance to fail. I hate to say it that way. Um, They didn't give them the chance to fail before they put that baby back in the home. After the baby was placed, they noticed that the mother was not going to the drug counseling or the um, taking the parenting classes and all that. There should have been milestones that these parents had to meet before that child was released, even regardless of whether the foster mother called or not. But it was obvious right from the very beginning to her that things were not progressing the way they should have been when they released, even before they released the baby, you know, she said that right away, as soon as, um, the first visit was over, she expressed her concerns. And, um, then, like I said, there were, there were no milestones that the parents were given to reach to show that they were prepared to take the baby back into their home. They should have had, um, different, different goals to reach to show that they were better prepared to take care of this baby. And that did not happen either. Um, 
I think a professional would have called this a, a treatment plan, um, you know, as far as getting the mother off the drugs. And I also think um, there should have been random drug testing along the way. I, at this point, um, from what I understand, Daniel Sr. was the only person, other than the initial drug testing that they did on Jessica when she was delivering, Daniel was the only one providing drug samples and or drug you know urine for drug testing and um he he must have known about it ahead of time you know so he was always prepared with somebody else's pee which they should have done it unplanned like had him come in one time and not given him a you know a urine sample and then maybe two visits later or two appointments later said well you know today we're going to do it so that he would never know when he was going to get it and he could be caught off guard um so yeah there were just a lot of things that went wrong Ultimately, this baby never should have gone back to their the parents, and certainly not as soon as it as as it had. And like I said, they didn't give the parents opportunity to fail, to show that they weren't prepared, and they did not give them an opportunity to succeed either. And so, even though I find this case totally disgusting, especially with Jessica, I, um, you know, a miracle could have happened. She could have. She could have, uh, you know, if she'd have been able to go through the process of, of, you know, really facing the possibility of losing her child, maybe her other child as well, um, she, you know, something life-changing could have happened for her, and it didn't. Well, anyway, that's my thoughts. I just, I feel so bad for not just little baby Dylan, but Daniel Jr. as well, um, this is a bad thing for him as well. It must be horrible to testify against your parents. And then he's lost his entire family. So if you've listened this long, I want to thank you. Dying to know what your thoughts on this case are. You can reach me at isurvivechildhood at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Please be safe. Bye-bye.